0: And welcome to episode 109 of the Creative Writer's Toolbelt, which I'm recording on Thursday, December 21st, 2017, and comes to you with my very best wishes for a very happy and blessed Christmas and a prosperous new year. And I'm delighted to be rounding off the year with another great interview episode. This is a conversation with the literary agent, Juliet Mushins. Now, I met Juliet at Fantasy Con, and she very kindly accepted my invitation to be a guest on the podcast. And we caught up a couple of weeks ago, and I'll be playing that conversation to you in a moment. I've been reflecting on some of the things I've been up to this year. Now, I've had a great time this year preparing and presenting episodes of the podcast for you. I've enjoyed speaking with a range of wonderful guests, writers, agents, fellow podcasters, and others who are professionals in the business. And I want to particularly thank you for listening to the podcast, you who are listening right now, taking the time to listen to the Creative Writers Tool Belt. Ever since I started this podcast nearly four years ago, I have always considered it a privilege to be able to share knowledge and insight with the people who take the time to listen to what I have to say and what my guests have to say. And connected with that, I wanted to say to you that I'm always happy to hear from you guys about the projects you're working on and also topics that you think it would be interesting interesting to hear more about. So if you've got something that you want me to tackle on the Creative Writers tool Belt, a topic or an issue, just let me know. Drop me a line. It's andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com and I will endeavour to do that. So this year is also been important for me because it's seen the publication of the creative writers tool belt handbook which is my attempt to cram all of the best advice and insight from the first hundred episodes of the podcast into one volume now if you've bought that book thank you very much and i really do hope it's been helpful to you please do leave a review for it on Amazon. I'd be very grateful. And if you're listening to this podcast and contemplating, as I am, your writing goals for the new year, it's possible that the handbook might be the resource you need to help you gear up for those writing projects that you're going to be working on and to develop your skills as a creative writer. My big project for next year is to really get to grips with the science fiction novel that's been hanging around for nearly a decade, and I've been working on it on and off. It's called The Centauri Survivors, and it's going to be a tale of pursuit and survival and liberty on mankind's first exoplanet now I'm hoping this is going to be a great book but the thing is I just need to get on with it next year you know that feeling when you have a writing project and you just need to persist with it and get the thing done and I feel like that's the best advice I can give myself and all of you for 2018 and you can sum it up in a couple of ways one way to think of it is that we should just jolly well write as the author Antonia Honeywell reminded us in the last episode And another way, which I've been reflecting on quite a lot over the last few weeks, is to think of it like this. Don't worry about developing your reputation as a writer. Worry about developing your reputation as a person of persistence. And to me, that seems like a really good piece of advice. And I say all this to encourage myself and you for us all to do the very best work we can and be the best writers that we can be. And so we come to this episode, and I am delighted to be able to bring you a conversation with the literary agent Juliet Mushins. Juliet is one half of the firm Caskey Mushins, which is a new agency established this year. And Juliet started her publishing career in 2008 with Harper Collins. She became an agent with PFD in 2011, moved to the agency group in 2012, where she was head of their UK literary department. She's been shortlisted for literary agent of the year four years running. She represents best-selling and critically acclaimed authors on her list and that includes the million copy seller jesse burton who is the author of the miniaturist and the muse she also looks after the new york times bestseller taran matharu and sunday times bestsellers ali land claire douglas debbie howells and james oswald and on the non-fiction side she represents very british problems for books tv brand partnerships and merchandise her guide to young adult creative writing was published by Hodder in 2015 and you can find her on twitter at at Mushenska, that's M-U-S-H-E-N-S-K-A, and her email is juliet at com. Now, in this conversation, Juliet tells us about how to approach an agent, what to put in the query letter and what in a single sentence an agent is really looking for. And I think one of the really important things about this conversation, certainly for me, and I hope for you, is that we're hearing information and advice directly from an agent who is working in the business right now. There's a lot of stuff that can crop up myths and opinions that people have about what agents want. This is is an actual agent telling it how it is. I found it interesting and very informing. I hope you do too. Juliette, welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt. Thank you very much for giving us some of your time today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: I want to start by asking you to tell us how you got into publishing because I think you started your career in publishing and then you've moved into being an agent from there. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. So I graduated from my degree when I was 21 and I started a paid internship at HarperCollins where I worked in their fiction marketing department and they had a fiction marketing assistant as well and she was leaving at the end of the summer and they were interviewing other people for her job and then about four weeks in my boss turned to me and said you've been doing this job already for four weeks we all like you do you want to interview for the job instead and I interviewed for the job and they gave me that role so excellent I had a fairly seamless transition into publishing so I worked at HarperCollins for two years in fiction marketing and then in editorial and I worked on Voyager so on the science fiction and fantasy imprint and then I decided that whilst I liked working in a publishing house actually I thought I wanted to work at a literary agency more than at a traditional publisher and I applied for a job at PFD which is a very old literary agency one of the oldest in the UK where I was going to be literary assistant to two agents one non-fiction one one fiction right and i got that role and that was my first step on the ladder of becoming an agent
0: Okay, and how did you assist in that role? What did you have to do?
1: Being an agent's assistant is really interesting, I think, because it's incredibly, incredibly diverse in terms of what you do day to day. So that could be everything from diary management, booking taxis, booking restaurants, booking hotels, booking flights, doing scheduling for London Book Fair, scheduling for Frankfurt Book Fair, proofreading writing copy, updating the website, getting to (laughs) read editorial notes, um, write editorial notes, reading submissions. Sometimes I used to, you know, run running physical errands as well, which I always used to really enjoy. So, you know, their their, one of their clients has got a review in The Spectator. So I'd trot out into Covent Garden with a company credit card to go and buy four copies of The Spectator to bring back and helping liaise with publishers, checking deal memos, checking contracts, a lot of posting. So a lot of posting of copies of books
0: to publishers,
1: to co-agents, to film agents. So a really, really eclectic mix.
0: Yes. It sounds like it's kind of whatever they ask you to do, really.
1: Essentially, yes. And I, I think as a literary assistant, in a way, perhaps more than Working in a publishing house, you know, if you're at a publishing house, you're probably assistant in a team, yes. which was what I was when I was fiction yeah. marketing assistant, I was assistant to a whole department. Whereas as a literary assistant, you're an assistant to one or two people. So you become quite close to them, you spend a lot of time with them. Yeah. And you really do whatever they need you to do to make their job easier
0: (laughs) Um, now that's that's not the limit of of where where you've been and what you've done of course so can you tell us a little bit about uh, what what happened after your time there
1: yeah so I was promoted to agent whilst I was at PFD and I started representing TV tie-ins and celebrity books on behalf of some of the talent agents there as well as building my own list so I started taking on Fiction, as well as representing non-fiction, and I would say that non-fiction, in a lot of ways, is quicker and easier if you're establishing a list. Most non-fiction you sell on the basis of a proposal, so uh, kind of a chapter breakdown and one or two sample chapters. Right. And I would say with non-fiction, there's always a floor, but there's always a ceiling. So what I mean by that is, if I represent X celebrity or X podcast, I know how many subscribers they have, how many downloads they have, how many social media followers they have. So I know I will sell it and I know probably what the floor will be as in the minimum they'll take and the minimum that publisher will offer. But there is always a kind of ceiling on that as well. Whereas with fiction, it's definitely slower. You know, I sold a few projects this year, which I've been working on for literal years. (laughs) And you can go through five, six drafts with an author before you submit a book. And it can be a lot of work before you're at a stage where you see any money from it. So no. it's, a, it's a slower part of the industry, I think, to nonfiction. However, for me, there's definitely no flaw. So sometimes I won't sell something or something. I w- sometimes I will sell something for a really small amount of money. But I would say, actually, there can be no ceiling sometimes. Yeah, so if sure. it's a big, hot fiction book, you can achieve enormous advances in a way that and especially internationally in a way that I yeah. don't think you always can with nonfiction.
0: So, so fiction is a little bit more risk and more reward yes. in terms of the process. Okay. And tell us where you are now, what you're doing now, what you've been doing for the last year or so.
1: Yeah, so I set up my own agency, Caskey Mushins, in January of this year with my business partner, Robert Kasky. Robert and I met at PFD. So Robert and I worked there together years ago, so five years ago, I think, five or six years ago. And we'd known one another all that time. I left to go to the agency group, which was a music agency. And I was there for four years. And we stayed in contact whilst he was at PFD. He represents an amazing list of clients, including Mm. Sarah Winman, who wrote When God Was a Rabbit. And he's in the past done book deals for Ruby Wax and Celia Imri and all sorts of the great and the good. Mm. And we always wanted to set up our own agency. And finally, we decided, do you know what? If we don't do it now, we never will. <laughs> <laughs> we decided to make the jump at the beginning of the year.
0: Okay. So, in the context of you being in a, a new business, almost mm-hmm. like a kind of startup business, um, what do you do now? What, what does your job involve now? Or what has your maybe- job involved in the last few months, let's say?
1: in many ways my job is exactly the same as it always has been which is caring for my existing clients so negotiating repeat deals for my clients negotiating film deals foreign deals merchandising deals editorial notes being the middleman between them and the publisher but it's definitely it sharpens the mind when you set up (laughs) your own business because
0: i can imagine yeah
1: in one of the things that struck me when I first left a publisher to go to an agency is working in a publishing house, you're quite protected in some ways from the business end. You know that books are bought and you know you yes. pay in advance, et cetera, et cetera, but you're quite removed from it. Whereas when you're at a literary agency, you're very aware that we do this deal, we take 15%. This means we get this money if we don't receive X amount we can't cover our costs, people can't get paid, you can't pay rent, etc. And so I often say to young graduates who ask me for advice in what should I go into, should I go into agenting, should I go into publishing, I often say, if your idea of agenting is kind of sitting around in an ivory tower reading endless manuscripts is probably not <laughs> right for you because you're definitely at the business end of it there's a, yes. a lot of spreadsheets a lot of cash flow breakdown etc cetera, etc cetera. You, you're you kind of a manager for the author yeah. and for their business interests in a way so my business has remained I would say the same as, it, as it's been in previous years but obviously I've learned a lot too yes, you know of things course. like setting up we're a limited company and we have an accountant and we have a bookkeeper so how to build a website and you know doing a, our first vat return and management <laughs> accounts and liability insurance and all of these things which had never even occurred to me before, yeah. <laughs> uh, which we've suddenly had to get to grips with but it, it's been very rewarding and i think that in in a lot of ways it, it makes sense for, for robert and i at the stage we were in our careers because we sign the client, we work with the client, we do the deal. And now it's ours. So we get to shape the business, decide which authors we take on. And we are the buck stops with us. So we are the final say in everything.
0: Yeah. So just um, just turning to the kind of things that you like to read, Mm-hmm. Um, now I understand um, you've got a fairly eclectic literary taste, um, mm. which takes in the likes of Riders by Jilly Cooper and Nabokov's Lolita and Assassin's Apprentice from Robin Hard Hob-, Hob and Vernon God Little and many more. So. Thinking about books that you like to read, just, just for the pleasure of it for yourself, obviously it's a wide range, but what sort of things catch your eye? What sort of things pique your interest, do you think?
1: My my taste outside of work reading is pretty much identical to my taste in work reading. Okay. I always say it's, I like books which have a kind of neat concept. So I'm often a sucker for a kind of high concept idea. Okay. Uh, but it, for me, the writing has to be very good. So yes. it has to be a good quality writing but also a page turning plot. I'm not really someone who will invest a lot of time in a weighty tome where I feel like not very much is happening. Okay. I I have to say that I I always want there to be a plot uh, but that can range from reading a thriller to commercial women's fiction, fantasy, science fiction, historical fiction. Yeah. I think historical fiction is probably my favorite genre. Okay. I I love historical fiction. I mean, some of my biggest books that I represent are historical fiction, but outside of work, a lot of my favourite authors write historical fiction. And I think that's possibly as well why I love fantasy so much, because I think there's Mm. a big crossover in terms of kind of creating a world, almost a really immersive, very alien world.
0: So uh, looking at your website, I'm thinking about you as an agent now, and i just say it sounds as if... There's, this ma- there's a big overlap then between what you might read just f- for your own pleasure and mm-hmm. what you're reading on a work day. Mm. Um, and your website encourages submissions that are, uh, I'm just quoting here, crime thrillers, science fiction and fantasy, young adult, historical, reading group fiction, psychological suspense and anything in between. Mm-hmm. And I was intrigued by the term reading and group fiction. And I wondered if you could just define reading group fiction for us.
1: Sure. So reading group fiction is one of those terms that we use in the industry pretty much daily. But actually, I think outside the industry, most people have no idea what it means. Mm. It's otherwise known as kind of commercial literary crossover. So it's those kind of sweet spot books, books which are upmarket in terms of writing. So the writing is quality writing. Yes. But equally, they have a page turning plot and they have things which you'll want to talk about afterwards. Books which raise issues, which raise questions for the yeah. reader, books which, once you finish them, you think not just, oh, that was a good book and you put it away, but that was a good book. I'm really fascinated by yeah. how the author dealt with X yeah. and I want to discuss it with people. I always think a very good example of reading group fiction is something like We Need to Talk About Kevin, which sure. is yes. literary writing, but a real page turning plot and a very clever narrative structure with a twist at the end. Mm. And that's a book that I have discussed at book groups before
0: mm. and i think
1: is very ripe subject material for a big discussion so that's kind of what we mean by reading group fiction
0: okay and uh, while we're looking at definitions the other thing that i, I noticed that, that you'd said is that uh, you're quite keen to read own voices submissions now yes. for those who are not familiar with that phrase can you can you explain to us what that means
1: so uh, historically i think publishing has been pretty bad at representing anyone outside of white middle-class kind of cisgendered straight writers for for various reasons and own voices really means people who are writing their own experience so people of color or lgbt plus people um or trans people, or or whatever that might be, or people with a disability writing characters who have that same experience. So making sure people who have that actual valid experience are getting a chance Hmm. to tell their stories, rather than other people telling those stories for them.
0: Okay, so thinking about how the relationship between prospective authors and and agents is changing just at the moment. Obviously, we're seeing the rise of the indie author and and the hybrid author and hybrid publishing. Uh, And more writers are asking the question, do I need a literary agent? Do I need an agent? So what would you say are the reasons why a prospective writer should consider approaching an agent?
1: I always find this quite an interesting question. I mean, I guess the first thing I'd say is if you don't want an agent, you don't have to have one. That's (laughs) totally fine. And... The other thing I would say, I've been asked this question probably since I became an agent and I receive around 5,000 plus submissions a year. So I think even with the rise of self-publishing and hybrid authors, a lot of people do want a literary agent. I think it depends what you want out of your publishing career. If you want to self-publish, if you have a plan for your editorial, your marketing, your publicity, you want to control every aspect of that process, you know how you're going to do it that's what you want out of it, then no, you don't need an agent. But if you want to be traditionally published by a big house, you probably do need mm. an agent. Obviously, there are exceptions to the rule, but the vast majority of publishers don't even consider submissions unless they come via a literary agent. Yeah. So you're not yeah. even going to cross the desk of a lot of editors unless you have a literary agent. And also a huge part of my role is negotiating, because when a publishing house negotiates with an author and it's just the publishing house, just that author, it's a very different experience from when a publishing house negotiates with me, because they're not just negotiating with me for this one author. They also have to bear in mind every previous contract they have done with me and every future contract Mm. they might Mm. do, which shifts the balance of negotiating power.
0: And presumably they're well aware that you might be talking to a number of publishers on behalf of your client.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: And to just flip it over as well slightly, I I noticed you said you you get about 5,000 submissions a year. Can you say how many of those roughly you would take in a year or how many new authors, let's say, you take on in a year?
1: I think this year I've taken on... I think five or six writers. Okay. And every author that I've pitched for this year has signed with me, right. which is not always the case. So I think no. I think last year I signed around six authors, but I'd also offered for another two who signed with other agents, which which mm. happens sometimes. This year I've got a hundred percent hit rate, which I'm very happy. <laughs> um, Perfect score. <laughs> but I would say it's not. It's not a hard and fast rule. If 12 books had crossed my desk this year that I absolutely loved, that I was confident I could sell, that I had to sign, then I would have made 12 yeah. offers of representation,
0: okay. or if only
1: two had crossed my desk that I thought, actually, I can really make this work. I think this is great, then I would have signed two. It's, there's sure. no kind of quota. It's about the quality of the book right. and whether I think I can right. sell it and what I think I can offer the author.
0: Okay. I'm, I'm going to come on to talk to you a little bit later about the kind of questions that authors always want to ask agents around, you know, how should I present this? How should I write my query letter? Mm -hmm. All this sort of stuff. But I just wanted to ask you a question about the way authors behave with and engage with their agents. So Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about how, the perfect author or the near perfect author should behave with and engage with their agent.
1: My relationship with all of my authors is totally different. If I'm honest, there are, there are some authors that you talk to all the time. There are others that you only hear from every few weeks. I would just say the main thing is to be polite, respectful, Mm. friendly, Mm. and hardworking. Those are all qualities (laughs) that I'm looking for in an author and it's an incredibly rewarding relationship, and mm. I feel very lucky to work with the people that I work with. and I think life's too short to work with people you don't like. absolutely. And, yeah, and I know not not all not all agents can necessarily be in a position where they think, actually, if I don't like the person doesn't matter what the book's like, I don't want to do it. <laughs> but that's always kind of been my, been my ethos. Sure. So I would say, you know, just be professional. Uh, yeah. Also understand that it is a business. So a, a big part of my job, as well as getting to break good news is getting to break bad news, which is oh, not wow. a pleasant part of the job. No. And I think a lot of authors are very good at developing a kind of thick skin, the understanding that okay, realistically, not every book can be a number one bestseller. And things are going to go wrong. And I will get bad reviews. And I think it's just going into it with the mindset of I'm, you know, this is what I've accomplished, I'm really happy with what I've done. Hmm. But there are going to be parts of this business, which aren't going to necessarily be incredibly enjoyable, or full of just good news. So I think understanding that as hard as it is, you can't take it personally because no. it's a, it's about a book and it's about a book that you've mm. created, of course, but it's not about you. Someone not liking your book is not someone not liking you. No. So understanding kind of that it, it is a business fundamentally and you have to develop a little bit of a thicker skin. I mean, sure. obviously, having said that. If I was a novelist, I would basically cry every single day if people ever (laughs) said anything mean about my book, which is why I am not a novelist. And from the lofty (laughs) position of not being a novelist, I can, of course, dispense these piles of wisdom about how professional people should be. (laughs) I
0: I suppose authors need to bear in mind that every time you take on a new author, you're taking a a substantial risk, aren't you? You're taking a business risk, a financial risk, a risk with your time and your resources.
1: Yeah, massively so, and and I think something that I do wish that unagented writers would remember, which I sometimes think they don't, is that the main part of my job has to be looking after my existing client list. I have around 40 writers who have book deals, and they require a hell of a lot of work, mm. whether that's editing their manuscripts, reading their manuscripts, dealing with their foreign publishers, deeming, dealing with film publishers, negotiating contracts, they don't like their jacket, they don't like their edits, copy <laughs> editing queries. It, it really is, I, I can get in busy busy times of year upwards of 500 emails a day many of which require a response within 24 48 hours yeah. you know during october i had 11 authors deliver manuscripts um wow. which you know and and it is a huge volume of work and so i do read submissions and i am always looking for new writers but i have to balance that with the needs of my existing client list because mm. if i turned around and said to one of my authors i'm really sorry i haven't invoiced your publisher for your publication advance but it's because I've been too busy reading unsolicited submissions (laughs) they'd probably have some very stern words to say yes someone who is sending their submission to me probably wouldn't like it if I did then sign them and then they didn't hear from me for four or five months because I was too busy reading submissions to respond so you know I, I think that's something that people sometimes forget I'm always looking for new talent. I am always looking for new books, but I have to balance that yes, with yes. doing the, my day job.
0: So those who eagerly submit to you should, should be a little bit patient as well while they're waiting for you to come back to them.
1: Yeah, I, w- I would say so. I really, I feel very guilty when I don't read my submissions every week but there are some weeks where I just physically don't have time to read submissions
0: I I do want to pick up on something that you've mentioned a couple of times in this conversation which is you've talked about the editing that you do of manuscripts now I know I know I hear that some agents don't really edit they don't do much editing it's very light they're very light on that they just they just submit manuscripts to publishers Um, it sounds as if you do a fair bit of editing uh, for the work that you want to represent. Is that correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. I always say that I I don't interfere unnecessarily with a manuscript, but I normally have a fairly keen sense of the big structural problems, which I think will prevent a publisher buying a book. And there's absolutely no point me sending out a manuscript, which I know has problems Mm. only for Mm. every editor to reject the manuscript because it has problems <laughs> and uh, that's not a situation i want to be in no, and no. and i'm never going to be someone who says to the author mm, we need to do another round of edits just for the sake of it because i don't make any money until and unless i sell a book to a publisher yeah. so yeah. agents take commission off the advance we take 15 percent in the home market 20 percent overseas and in film and so i'm not going to be just for the sake of it making an author do draft after draft after draft right. because i of course want to sell the book but there is absolutely no point me rushing a book out when it's not ready yet and every single rejection that comes back is something that i knew was wrong with it, it there's just no point me no, doing it
0: it just doesn't make sense does it i suppose um, now one one thing i did want to ask you about as well some some of my fellow writers have expressed concern agents are only interested in going to big publishers but there's a there's a thriving small press scene now so can do you want to just respond to that how how, how would do you, do you place books with smaller smaller presses how does that work
1: i don't often place books with smaller presses i i have done it in the past and i'm sure i will do it <clears throat> in the future i would say it's a conversation with the author mm. so sometimes an author says to me, I really, really want this publisher, this small press to see my book and I'll, of course, send it to them. But some small presses I've had a really good experience with, Mm. but I would say that some small presses aren't overly keen on dealing with agents or some don't necessarily have the money or the resources to put together the kind of package that I would want to encourage an author to take. And I think, and this doesn't just cover small presses this covers everything I always think that it's better to have no book deal than a bad book deal um, and for me it's not just about where I sell the book it's what's their marketing plan what's their publicity plan how are they going to sell the book how are they going to attract readers to the book how many copies do they think they'll sell what is their track record and if someone has really good answers to those questions then I'm more than happy to investigate the possibility of doing a deal with them but it's my job to make sure that I'm not underselling the author's work.
0: Sure. So uh, I guess this perhaps comes back to what you were saying earlier about this. is It's a business as well as dealing with works of art, isn't it? This it, it has to work for you and for your clients, for your people you represent as a business deal.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, and of course, I discuss it with the author. And if an yeah. author says to me, there's a really particular publisher I want to submit to, or I've always really admired the work that's put out by this press, then I will do my digging, find a contact there and send the book out. And there are some of my authors who are published by small presses and are really, really happy with the experience. And some of my authors as well started at small presses before moving to a bigger house. Hmm. But something that I think is worth considering as well for an author is a publisher is always going to look at your track record. And if you are being published by someone who doesn't necessarily have the setup to ship lots of your copies in stores, or or necessarily have relationships with big retailers? They can't get your book into Waterstones. They can't get your book into X, Y, and Z mm. places. Then maybe it's they're not necessarily the right person to go with. And I know recently there's been a lot of talk in the bookseller and independent press shut down and a lot of authors have ended up out of pocket none of Mm. them are being paid Mm. there are a lot of creditors and they're going to divvy up i think the remains once the biggest creditors have been paid between the authors and there's also another forum called i think it's called writers beware and they list (laughs) you know bad agents so people you (laughs) shouldn't trust but also also bad presses and there are people who have experience with you know they sell their book one of their friends says oh I'm going to set up a small press and I'm going to put these books out and they decide yeah great they sign a contract then three years later the book's never been printed yeah they they can't get the rights back it's very awkward between them and And I was on a panel at Fantasy Con about contracts with a couple of people who ran small presses, and they were great, and they were really honest, and they were saying, you know, we never buy rights that we don't know how to exploit, you know, we'd never try and buy translation rights because we wouldn't know how to sell them, Mm -hmm. we would never try and buy film rights because we wouldn't know how to sell them, Mm -hmm. and that's great, but not everyone... is so honest so <laughs> it's just making sure i would say it applies just as much to a big publisher as it does to a small yeah. publisher my job is to get the best deal for the author
0: yeah and i guess it, if you're a dishonest small press owner you don't go on a panel deal. you or you do you tend not to talk about your business practices <laughs> you probably
1: most. don't but they probably talk about you on writers beware <laughs> I suspect you might not talk about it but yeah you, know, you, you definitely <clears throat> do see people who who will discuss experiences they have had and and sometimes it's just not in the author's best interest to do the deal you know Mm, i'll I'll mm. ask the questions about what's the money that you're offering up front what are the royalties you're offering what's your plan to publish can you name some success stories and sometimes someone comes back and the answers are great and we decide yeah this is worth doing but if the answers come back and it, it's not looking like a good picture to me, mm. you know, it's not always the, about the money, it's about the royalties, it's about their strategy, it's about the rights they want, it's about the whole picture. Mm. And I, I think, you know, kind of marry in haste, repent at leisure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or marry carefully to start with is probably yes. better <laughs> exactly. yes yeah no that, that that does all make sense now i i do want to ask a couple, you a couple of questions about how authors particularly approach you but mm. i wondered if let's say somebody's listening to this and they are, have written their their work and they've got it to the the best they can get it and they think i don't really want to self-publish i want to go go to a commercial publisher um but i'm i think i need to approach an agent and that's as far as they've got. So they haven't really got any more of a clue than that. What what sort of advice would you give to that person?
1: I think that nowadays it's really easy to research agents. So when mm. I started out at a publishing house, I had no idea what agents did because all of their websites were terribly archaic if they even had websites.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and they were
1: very hard to navigate. Whereas nowadays most agency websites are brilliant they are so easy to use they clearly list the books they represent the sales they've done their news how to submit to them what they're looking for mm. so i would google every agent that you're interested in submitting to find out their particular likes their particular dislikes their submission preferences and then make sure that you give them exactly what they're looking for okay um, uh, that would be my big piece of advice
0: would you would you recommend? Uh that writers get something like the writers and artists yearbook and do some research in that or or is is that not terribly necessary nowadays do you think
1: i think that the writers and artists yearbook is a really great jumping off point but i think it is just a jumping off point because i Uh would say the best place you're always going to get information about an agent is their website so often people will submit to me and they'll say oh i saw a piece about you on x or you know, there was a piece about your agency and why, and it said you're looking for blah, blah, and blah, and I should submit to you this way. And often that information is wrong. Sometimes it's wildly (laughs) out of date. Sometimes it's just wrong. And so I would always say the best place is kind of from the horse's mouth. So have a look on the agency website, see what they're looking for, see who's best to submit to.
0: Okay. And um, I'm sure you're right that in fact – it isn't that hard for anybody to to submit in the correct way because all of these all of these websites are very clear uh, about it having said that i have to ask you the question do you still get material which is submitted to you in completely the wrong format in not the way that you ask for it on your website uh, not wrong genre wrong format wrong whatever just just clearly the person has not paid any attention to how you want to receive stuff.
1: Absolutely. It happens really more often than I <laughs> care to think of. So, I mean, one that made me laugh today is obviously my name is Juliet Mushans, My business partner's name is Robert Caskey. Uh, I got a submission to Mrs. Caskey, Ms. Caskey. You get Dear Sirs, Dear Sir slash Madam. And I always just think it's a bit lazy. You know, if you're sending... Mm. An email to my email address, which is Juliet at CaskeyMushins.com. How hard is it to know what my name is? It's literally my company. Uh, I don't know who these fictional sirs they are addressing are, and and I think I find it frustrating because I'm constantly refining our submission guidelines to try. And make it impossible for people to send me the wrong information.
0: You know, it's a waste of of my
1: time. (laughs) So I'm constantly thinking to myself and taking feedback from people on Twitter of this wasn't necessarily clear. Do you accept screenplays? Do you accept short stories? So I've tried to make it as clear as
0: humanly possible. So it says,
1: do send me and don't send me. And I just think a lot of people just don't read it because i get sent non-fiction which i don't represent i get sent children's books picture books which i don't represent and and it's just a waste of the person's time Mm. it says i don't do Mm. screenplays it says i don't do short story collections or poetry there's no point sending me those things because i'm not an expert in them i wouldn't know how to sell them Mm. that's why i don't represent them sending me a script I would have no idea what to do with it because that's not what I do. And the same with Mm. uh, the other genres that I don't represent. There's a reason I don't represent them because I'm not an expert in that part of the market. I am an expert in the genres I do look after, which is why I ask to be sent them. So I think I find it frustrating – I guess I just find it a little bit baffling, but I've talked about this with people who work as recruiters, and they always say exactly the same: that people are just as bad when applying for jobs. <laughs> that you know they they miss, they miss label who they're sending it to. They don't include the right information they you know don't even necessarily write the right job title or whatever so i guess it's just human nature in some ways to disregard those kind of instructions
0: it is it is, it is baffling really isn't it because it's it is one of the first things you learn i think as a writer if you want to submit to an agent or to if you're if you're sending your work to somebody find out who they are find out what they want find out how they want it that kind of thing whether you're publishing yep. house or, or an agent um and just to take this through to its kind of bitter conclusion if you do get stuff which is not formatted at all properly is not what you're looking for what what happens to it
1: i delete it
0: that's it yeah <laughs>
1: well if that sounds that yeah. sounds really brutal And i didn't
0: well no no i wanted that. you to be brutal actually because i yeah. think people need to hear that yeah. that actually that's what's going to happen isn't it
1: it's it's a funny one because when it says you know if it's not formatted properly do I do I delete it you know if someone attaches the first re- attaches their cover letter rather than pasting it in the body I'm not going to delete that no, you know no. it's no, 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 I obviously I said, don't yeah. but but if it if they are submitting me a genre which I do not represent which I say on my website I do not represent then there is no point me engaging with it sure. and I, I used to write back saying you know, I'm sorry, this isn't a genre I represent. And people would then write back saying, well, I think you should make an exception (laughs) for this work or people can get quite combative as well. And uh, so in the end, I've just decided, do you know what? I reply to every submission I receive. That takes a hell of a lot of time. But if they're not going to do me the common courtesy of at least making sure that they have even read my submission guidelines, then I should, I should probably spend that time on someone else's submission who has because the majority do put that time and effort in.
0: Yes. Yeah. And, and we should all remember, you've said, do you have 5000 submissions a year? Yeah. So we can understand why you haven't got time to mess about with people who can't send you stuff properly. Um, yeah. And it's also worth noting what you said there that, in fact, on your website, you ask for the query letter in the body of the email mm-hmm. rather than just separately. So if people want to do it perfectly, they put it in the email. Yeah. So and I do want to actually ask you something about about query letters because quite a lot of writers get confused or uncertain as to what should go in the query letter and especially that balance between information about the work and information about themselves. So can you give us a little bit of a steer as to how you see that 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 should be?
1: Sure. So in my opinion a cover letter should be no more than one A4 page long. It needs to contain the following information: the title of your book, the genre of your book, uh, a brief piece of marketing copy, so a paragraph or two, which would be like the blurb on the back of a book. Right. Let me know if it's the first in a trilogy, the first in a series, a standalone book, and then just a couple of lines about you. That's literally all your cover okay. letter needs to contain. If you have any writing credits, you've had short fiction published, you have a podcast, you've interviewed you know, these authors who've encouraged you, you've done a creative writing M.A., absolutely mention it but the bulk of your cover letter needs to be about the book you're submitting it should be 90 percent right. about the book 10 percent about you okay and a cover letter is designed to make me despite the fact i'm incredibly busy and have a million <laughs> other things to do think this sounds amazing i absolutely have to read it right away okay. and then open the chapters that's what you want to achieve with your cover
0: letter and if we think about particularly what you what you might attract you, you mentioned that you quite liked uh, concepts earlier on. And I think you used the term high concept. Again, not everybody will understand what that means. I wondered if you could give us uh, one or two examples of what uh, maybe what a high concept looks like, or perhaps examples of literature that high concept.
1: Yeah, so a high concept is essentially just a neat one or two sentence conceit that sums up you know, a book that's obviously going to go into much more depth. Sure. So, a uh, book of mine, which I think of as high concept, is a novel called Good Me, Bad Me by Ali Land, which is narrated by the 15 year old daughter of a serial killer who's just shopped her mother to the police after years of abuse. She now has to testify at her mother's trial, but will she be good or will she be bad? So, that's an example mm. of mm. a kind of elevator pitch yeah. and yeah. a very neat hook for a book that's going to draw you in or a book the most recent book i sold at a nine-way auction which was the biggest auction i've done actually since the miniaturist um which was 11 publishers it's a historical novel called the familiars and the high concept pitch for that is it's set during the pendle witch trials of 1612 and the protagonist discovers that her midwife is wanted for witchcraft and murder can she save her life and is the woman a witch or is she innocent so those are books which you can very neatly sum up in yes. you know, a line or two yes. they and they immediately pique your interest.
0: So it, it, it kind of really is the elevator pitch isn't it? Yeah. It, uh, and I presume when you read that cover letter, when you read what, whatever's in the email, you're mm. already forming an opinion about the work that you're going to look at and how well disposed you are to it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I would say that You know, lots of cover letters aren't great. (laughs) Lots of cover (laughs) letters are just serviceable and that is fine. You know, that actually uh, lots of people really agonize over how do I do this? How do I put this together? I want to make myself stand out, really tie themselves up in knots. And actually, it doesn't need to be the best elevator pitch in the world. It doesn't need to be the flashiest cover letter. It just needs to do the job, which is this is my book this is the title, this is what it's about, right. here's a blurb about it, here's a couple of lines about me. Right. Okay. And not everyone is great at writing a very neat and succinct blurb, but they're good enough that it makes me think, okay, I'm, I'm happy to turn to this.
0: You'll give it a go, yeah. And again, another thing that uh, writers wonder, I think, is whether they should, and I think this would go in the query letter, um, whether they should say that their work is like another kind of book or another kind of writer's work is it is it a good or a bad thing to to compare one's work to other people's work
1: i think it can definitely be helpful to mention a couple of other writers whose work yours is similar to that doesn't have to be exactly you know my book is x meets y but (laughs) some books are that i remember when i um i sold a book called summoner by an author called Taryn matharu and his first three books have now been new york times bestsellers he's a number two New York Times bestseller, he's massive success. And he always said his books were Harry Potter meets Pokemon. And they are. <laughs> That's literally what they are. <laughs> That's- I I can't think of a neater way to describe it. Or I sold a book uh, called Hold Back the Stars and her pitch was it's gravity meets one day. And actually, that's exactly what the book is. And even the cover copy of the book and several of the reviews said that. But there are lots of books that don't have that neat kind of X meets Y. And I would just say it's useful to think to yourself, what other books will people who read my book also enjoy? and i whenever i submit a book to publishers will do at least three comp titles in the submission email okay
0: okay so um another thing that uh prospective authors are always doing is is talking about the the rejection letters that they get and many are are trying to glean some crumbs of comfort or encouragement from their rejection letters and uh, i was talking to a, a an author Couple of weeks ago, um, who said that they they didn't realise that um, if they pitch to an agent and the agent comes back and gives feedback, constructive feedback, even though, though they reject the work, uh, that actually the fact that they have bothered to give constructive feedback should be taken as a very positive sign. Now, would you would you agree with that? Or what 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 do you do with authors who nearly make the cut, nearly make it onto your list, but don't quite? What's what are the things you're saying to them?
1: So I would say that if. I, I have a standard rejection which is is a fairly standard rejection slip if if it's if I'm rejecting the first three chapters but I think there is something promising in it or there's a very specific reason I passed and sometimes there is you know sometimes I've just signed a book which is about teenage witches and I've just received a book which is about teenage witches sure, I sure. will normally put a PS which is you know PS you can write well but I, I just don't like the idea of this or or you write well but I have something too similar if I call in the full manuscript of a book and reject it I will give fairly detailed feedback nice. and sometimes that feedback is about the fact the story wasn't big enough the plot didn't sustain itself there wasn't enough pace to the novel sometimes it can be really really specific the I read a book I read a full manuscript a couple of weeks ago and I read the entire thing I was off sick and I read the whole thing <laughs> In a day, and I really went back and forth. You know, 20% of the book, I was like, I love it. I'm definitely going to offer representation. 40%, I was like, it's a no, I'm going to give up. And I made it right the way to the end. And my feedback for the author was really detailed because I'd read yeah. the whole thing in one right. city. Right. But it fundamentally didn't work. But I could kind of see why it didn't work. So okay. I gave the author very, very detailed feedback there. So I would say if you're getting personal feedback, it definitely means something and it means that you are along the right lines
0: yeah but having said that you wouldn't you wouldn't want to see a a, a corrected script unless you specifically ask for it is that yeah is that correct?
1: If, if i specifically go back to someone and say here's all my feedback if you want to make these changes i'd love to take another look then absolutely send it back to me but if i write back and i give you feedback but i don't say that i'd like to see it again then just cross me off your list and move on to someone <laughs>
0: else um and on the subject of uh, kind of moving on to something someone else, something that really, really intrigued me that um I've, I've heard from you and one or two other writers recently. There was a time when I thought that both publishers and agents were saying, please only send to one at a time. So I don't only approach one agent at a time. However, it sounds... I think from what you're saying, from something I've read, that you're encouraging authors to query more than one agent at a time. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. I think you should send to five to ten agents at any one time. Just make sure you keep us all in the loop.
0: If you get an offer
1: of representation, let everyone know and say, please can you get get back to me within normally two weeks is quite standard and let me know if you'd also like to offer or say, you know, other agents have also called in the full manuscript or whatever and just keep me in the loop, right. but absolutely send to multiple people. And and I think there are many criticisms which are leveled at agents, some of which are unfair, but some of which actually are totally, totally fair. And I agree <laughs> with, and I think in some ways, you know, one of the things I wanted to do with Casky Mushins was address some of that feedback by making sure you can absolutely see who Robert and I are, what we look for, the books we sell, make our guidelines as clear as possible. I'm absolutely happy to compete with other agents. I would never ask for an exclusive on a manuscript, and I fundamentally disagree with those who do ask to see exclusives as well. And, And I think that there are definitely things that agents need to kind of learned times have changed it's not like in the past when we expected someone to go out to a post office with their 50 pages weigh them have them pay you know pay the postage yeah, send yeah. it out wait you know six soul destroying months to come back <laughs> with an in the sae with a just standard rejection letter i think that times have moved on and we have to deal in a in a more professional more efficient way
0: Okay, um, now I understand uh, that you advocate something called the Mushins method, um, <laughs> and I'm intrigued to know what the Mushins method is and how should writers apply it.
1: So the the, the, the Mushins method is—I mean, it's not really a thing. It's just how <laughs> I I write. Pitch. So I write elevator pitches generally as character in setting experiences conflict to achieve resolution so that is my method for coming out with a neat succinct pitch because once you've got a really small pitch it's easy to expand it if you have a massive verbose five page pitch it's basically impossible to get it down
0: to a sentence
1: It's something my, my dance teacher always said, which is that you learn moves small and then you can make them big and theatrical. <laughs> and if you ah, make them big and okay. theatrical, it's impossible to make them small. So I, I think absolutely.
0: That's an interesting that is comparison, a, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: and it, it's a very it's a very basic tool. And I would say it, the most important part of that is what is the conflict at the heart of your novel what is the question the reader is going to have and how are you going to answer it by the end and that can be a massive conflict it can be how is this person going to save the world or it can be a really small conflict it can be how is this person going to find love or are they going to survive Mm. their first year of school but there has to be conflict in a book
0: that's interesting that you should say that i've i I spoke to a very world-renowned respected uh, editor and she sees a lot of work from New authors. And I said, what's the biggest problem that you, you're seeing with, with the work that comes your way and with you? And she could, she does some coaching and without hesitation, she said, she sees a lot of work where the protagonist doesn't have a goal. Mm -hmm. It's the protagonist is, it's almost like they're sitting in their, their front room, kind of sighing deeply and and considering the world and, and they don't, there's no, there's no engine to the thing. There's no, Mm. there's none of that complete. Now, would you agree with that do you see a lot of that is that is that a core yeah
1: i I would say that's true and i I would say both of those you know that kind of very much ties into the conflict which Mm. is you know your characters have to go on a journey and that can be a physical journey or it can be an emotional journey your characters shouldn't be the same at the end of the book as they were at the beginning of the
0: Mm. book Mm. and a a question another question about setting that i want to ask you actually which is something that an issue around setting that I, I discuss with people i i talk to people with setting about how you get your setting to be both credible and immersive by which i mean the setting has to be credible at some level even if it's fantasy for people to believe in it but yeah it has to also be immersive so that the reader can lose themselves in the best sense in it yeah. so do you find that you are critiquing or finding problems with the manuscripts that you see in that across that sort of spectrum as well
1: I think that one of the problems that I see often with fantasy and science fiction is that people know way too much about their world and the world is almost too complicated. So the first right. few chapters are just info dumping. So yeah, it's just exposition, yeah. exposition, exposition, and it feels almost like a kind of textbook rather than a story. And, and I think... That you have to know all of the answers to the questions of, you know, well, how were the royal family deposed and what's the currency they use and what's the geography like? When was the last war? You need to know all of that. But the vast majority of that does not need to make it onto the page at all. You just have to make us very aware of what the rules of your world are. Um, But we don't need to get bogged down in all of the kind of tiny my new shy, i suppose of the world sure. and i think what i always think with fantasy is it it has to be character first that for me is where any book succeeds or falls down you know it, it's it's not that stuff happens the end it's stuff happens <laughs> to these people how do these people respond how do they feel what do they do what are the decisions they yeah, make yeah and so even if your characters are in a world where there are dragons and there's magic and there are wizards or they're on another planet, or, you know, they're coping with a futuristic world, they're still people.
0: Yes, and and, and I, the writer, have to make you care
1: yep. about exactly. them.
0: Otherwise, exactly. it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, so, I'll, I'll, just coming back to that, it's, it, it's a bit like that kind of principle, I suppose, of the iceberg, where we only yes. see 10% of it, the reader only sees 10% of it, but we know that if somebody did bother to ask you what happened in 1548 in Poland yep. or whatever, that actually you, the writer, know, the writer knows what's going on. Yeah. One of the things that I talk about as well in my podcast is something called sparse and specific description, which I think perhaps might allude to some of this in that I think there's some merit in having description which is very specific, but don't overdo it. Don't info dump it. Um, yeah. and, I, and I wondered if, again, that was something that you would agree with um, and whether there you see a problem with description.
1: I suppose I always ask myself with Actually, I suppose every author, I think, should ask themselves when they're writing, is this furthering character? Is this furthering story? Is this world building? If it's not, why is it here? And sometimes Mm. there's a very specific Mm. reason it's here, but sometimes it doesn't actually need to be there one thing that I do think is particularly interesting is when I work with writers so I've read a manuscript and I take the writer on. I always say to the writer first here are my big sweeping editorial thoughts on the book what do you think of them yeah and so we establish that they're on board with them and 90% of the time it's not just that they're like yeah I see where you're coming from they're like yeah no I know I know that's a massive problem (laughs) <laughs> I I know there is a ginormous plot hole there. I just didn't really know how to fix it. So I just thought I'd leave it as it.
0: <laughs> so you found them out, basically.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so I actually feel that lots of the advice that you know, I give writers or we give writers. Actually, writers should trust themselves as well, which is that Mm. often they kind of know deep down, maybe I'm not quite answering this or maybe I fudged it a little bit or yeah, fine, the character probably wouldn't behave this way, but I kind of need them to so this can happen. And actually try not to let yourself get away with those
0: moments. So winging it just won't do. You'll get found
1: out. Yeah, most of the time you'll get caught out. And it's interesting for me because I'm a very... I'm very logical when it comes to editing. So I'm always the person that asks the difficult question, which is like, well, why, why is she here in this scene? If the kingdom is a five, five day ride away, how does she make it in a day and a half? I'm always that annoying person who's like, "Timeline doesn't make sense. Or because I do a lot of crime and thrillers, I'll be like, there's no way they'd be able to identify her from a body that decomposed. Like (laughs) I'm always that person piping up with those comments. But even if I'm not, it will get asked later down yes. the line. Like the, the the big moment it's always asked is if we're doing a film or TV adaptation and, you know, the, the screenwriter or the producer or whatever will be like, I've got some really big questions about these logistics. Yes. And suddenly the writer has to think, oh gosh, actually, do you know what? Yeah, I did consider it. This is how this happened. Or yeah, I've never considered it before. We have to come up with a reason.
0: So the consistency thing is critical. You can't really can't really fudge that. And one of one of the things I have mentioned in my podcast as well is borrowing from the theatre this idea of blocking. I don't know if you've heard the phrase blocking from no, the theatre, only um, in a theatrical sense. Yeah. So I sense. think writers should be very aware of blocking in cert- in the sense. That this is talking about this what you're talking about on a micro level in that where you have a setting with I don't know there's a there's a scene that you've written two or three characters um if you block the scene if you understand exactly where they all are and what they're doing and where they're moving to then you won't have one person in two places at the same time or Mm. they're trying to hold three different they seem to have four or five different arms because they're trying to hold three different things or they're standing (laughs) up and sitting down at the same time so yeah it's that kind of it's that kind of consistency and and attention to detail i suppose you even if you don't write loads about it you've got to have it in your mind Yeah. So we're coming to a close. Uh there's a couple of more questions I'd like to ask you just to kind of round things off. Um mm-hmm. is there are there any more really important things that you think a writer needs to bear in mind that, that perhaps we haven't covered in the questions that, that in the discussion that we've had? Are there any kind of pearls of wisdom that you've got?
1: I think don't rush the process. So a lot of people finish their book, type the end and send it out to agents. And I think the number one piece of advice I can give any writer is once you've finished your book, put it away for at least a month before you start editing it. Because actually in that time, you'll develop some distance from the work and it will become much clearer when you read it again where its objective strengths are and where its objective weaknesses are in a way that you just can't When you've finished it, when you've just finished it and you're right in the middle of it, you can't see the wood for the trees. So I think one of my biggest pieces of advice is put the book away before you start editing it. And then do at least two, three, four drafts even before you start sending it out. Don't just rush that process because you get one chance to make a first impression
0: Mm, okay now i i think you i think we've had the answer to this but i'm going to ask you this question are you open to submissions at the moment
1: yes absolutely i normally close to submissions for a couple of months over the summer so i can try and catch up because i have a little bit of a backlog but i'm currently open to submissions and i haven't signed anything for I haven't signed anything since the summer, so I've got that wow. itch where I want, <laughs> I want to find something new. So yeah, absolutely, okay. do do try me. And you know, my, my client list all, all came from unsolicited submissions, which is another okay. thing I want people to remember. I, d- I did <clears> a Guardian <throat> Masterclass recently, and someone came up to me in the interval, and he said, well... You know, you keep talking about sending you books, but everyone knows agents don't accept unsolicited submissions. And I said, well, no, that's absolutely ridiculous. In pretty much every agency I know in the UK accepts unsolicited submissions. And some of the biggest yes. books of the year have come from unsolicited submissions. And he said, well, on the online forums, people say, and I was like, I'm going to stop you right there. Who do you think knows more about this? People online or me? who literally does this for a living. So I would say, you know, and he did laugh at that, to be fair. But I would say there's a lot of kind of received wisdom out there that i just don't yeah. think is true you know a yeah, lot that true. agents that aren't is, yeah. looking for new books agents yeah. are only interested in who you know not what you write etc etc and it's just patently not true i am always looking for a book which makes me incredibly excited which makes me think do you know what i think this is going to be a massive hit i think this is going to be a big bestseller right. i do not care in the slightest who the author is okay. it's about the book
0: um now you are <clears throat> uh, professionally you are one half of casky machine so I- your colleague uh, robert what, what sort of things does he look for and is he looking for submissions
1: yes yeah, so robert recently reopened to submissions and he predominantly represents non-fiction which i don't represent okay. so if you have written a work of non-fiction you should definitely consider him but he also loves reading group fiction so reading group novels and i would say Robert likes books which are hopeful and uplifting. That tends to be an area that he does really well in. So books which have friendship at its heart, Uh, books which make you cry at the end, but in a way that you feel very hopeful, I suppose. Um, He sold a book this year called The Lido, which was, he found it on his slush pile in January by a really talented young writer called Libby Page. And uh, it's about two women who become friends when Brixton Lido is threatened with closure. And it's about their friendship and the impact that their friendship has on the local community. And that book's been sold in 26 countries around the world. The film rights have just been sold as well. And Robert is great at finding those books which make everyone feel kind of warm and uplifted at the end Mm. whereas as a general rule if your ending is bleak (laughs) and unresolved it's probably one for me (laughs) (laughs) we've we've had we've analyzed this at length and and i didn't realize it because i'm quite a disney person I, in my head, also have a very pollyanna taste in fiction, but that's just <laughs> not true if anyone looks at my client list. Wow. Okay. Uh, a lot of the books I represent are pretty dark. I would say not you know, not grim dark. I don't like no. books which I feel are kind of needlessly nasty for the sake of it, but I, I don't mind books which have an ending where you think, oh, actually, it's not all neatly kind of wrapped sure. up or it's, <clears> it's not all tied up with a neat bow. It's It's a bit darker than that.
0: We'll call them nuanced endings, perhaps yeah, yeah. yeah there we go.
1: <laughs> I have had I've represented in my time three books where the main character dies at the end, oh, gosh. and the publisher has made the main character not die at the end, <laughs> 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 which is quite funny in, in in all three cases, I was like,, eh, yeah, you know, I mean it's pretty depressing, but it is the way it is <laughs> in all three cases when it was bought by a publisher. Yeah. They were kind of like, no, that that really can't happen. That's
0: that the oh,
1: okay. <laughs> a lot in this. That I presume
0: in in a circumstance like that, you then have to go back to the author, and there has to be a conversation, and and things have to be sorted out. Is that? Oh
1: yeah, is, ma- massively. And yeah. if it's anything as big as that, it is always raised at negotiation stage. Sure, so sure. you know, if I'm doing an auction or a publisher offers on the book. In, you know, if I'm selling a book in America, we always do calls between the author and the publisher. And one of the main questions is, what's your editorial feedback? And often, most of the big stuff has already been sorted and it's just small nips and tucks. But it's very important to me that the author is comfortable with what the editor is saying and sometimes I you know I disagree and I can be that kind of more impartial sense checker when sure. the is like yeah. I really don't think that's right what do you think and I can sometimes be like do you know what actually I see their point or you know what I don't think they're the right fit for the book and I don't think
0: we should go with them okay and if anybody's concerned about whether you can manage Foreign rights, film, TV. I presume you've got con- you've got the connections and contacts to, to sort all that out as well.
1: Yeah, we've done over 100 rights deals this year. I think something like okay. seven or eight film deals. Um, yeah, so, I, m- I mean, books like The Miniaturist by Jesse Burton, mm. which is one of mine, that's airing on BBC One on Boxing Day, and that's been translated into 38 languages now. So we have a big international reach, and we yeah. sell a lot of books into America. And I'm, I'm off to New York in April to see all the editors that we have books with and um, make new contacts there as well. Right. So for us, right. it's not just about selling UK rights. It's also about selling the rights into America, selling the rights into translation. We go to Frankfurt Book Fair, we go to London mm. Book Fair, mm. and we're constantly dealing with international publishers because the UK part of the puzzle can sometimes be a very small piece and the rest of the world can be much more lucrative.
0: And are you open to submissions from anywhere around the world? Can anybody in the world send to you?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And my authors live all over the world from Nigeria to Scotland. So it's, (laughs) you know, the the joy of the internet and email means it's perfectly possible to deal with authors wherever they are. One of my authors... Uh, when she got her book deal it was big enough for her to quit her job and she went and lived in a tree house in Bali uh, <laughs> while she was working on her edits and one of my other authors uh, who's a New York Times bestseller he is a digital nomad so he travels the world with other digital nomads um, wow. and they work they work wherever they are so they you know set up their uh little um router or whatever and they'll they'll have the internet in the middle of the Gobi desert wow. or wherever they are <clears throat> uh so yeah na- nowadays it's much easier to do that
0: that would be a setting for a great manuscript i'm sure digital yeah. for something. <laughs> um and if people want to reach you it's uh com. yeah that that's right? the
1: website and all okay. of the information's on there and you can have <clears throat> more of a browse in terms of You know, not just the submissions, also our client list. And we also have a page of, you know, our co agents, so who we work with internationally, and also news as well. So, latest deals, bestsellers, prize short listings, that kind of stuff. Because one thing that I would say I think writers should consider when they're approaching agents is making sure you get the right agent. So, I I said earlier, it's better to have no publishing deal than a bad publishing deal. I think it's better to have no agent than a bad agent. So, you should Mm. be asking yourself, what books have they represented? What's their success rate? How many books have they sold? Mm. You know, it's, have I heard of any of their authors, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. We're, we're members of the Association of Authors Agents, which is our kind of industry body. Sure. And most agencies are as well. And the, these are all things to bear in mind.
0: So that's a sign of a reputable agent, really, that they would be a member of that.
1: Yeah, well, you you have to have been an agency for a certain number of years or to have reached a certain income threshold before you're admitted.
0: Right. Okay. Well, Juliet, I have asked all my questions. So um, (laughs) thank you so much for your time this evening oh well, been, thank you for having me it'd be great it's to really talk to you uh and um i do appreciate well, we all know agents are busy and i so i do appreciate the time great but, uh, well
1: thanks very much really nice to talk to you thanks a
0: lot have a Cheers. nice evening and Bye bye